Well, good morning. Go ahead and come on in if you're out in the foyer. We're going to get started with our adult Sunday school hour and continue our study through systematic theology. I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning recognizing that we are in need of your grace. You are kind and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we call out to you this morning just asking that you would help us to understand more clearly your word and your truth that reveals to us who you are. We need to be changed, and we ask that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds this morning, and that we would be transformed through your word by your spirit. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To review so far what we've covered in our Sunday school hour, we've gone through the study of the Bible. We've gone through a study of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, through the study of what Scripture says about man, about sin, about salvation, and about angels. And today we are going to jump into ecclesiology. And so far, if you've been with us at every class and every Q&A, we've covered over 26 and a half hours of content. So I feel like you should get a diploma or something by the time we're done with all the time spent. But hopefully it's been beneficial for you. I know for the teachers in this class, it's been immensely challenging and growing and stretching um, and helpful in our lives as well. So that's our desire as we go through this together. So To first start out just understanding what ecclesiology is, it comes from the Greek word. Um, Ekklesia is the Greek word we find in the New Testament. And it's translated in the New Testament as church oftentimes, depending on the context. So the first half of the word comes from uh, the meaning of out, from, and to something. And the second half of the word is the meaning to call or calling And this word has to do with a group of people being called out from one place and into another. So we could rightly say this word ekklesia means those who are called out or called together as in a gathering. So generally this term can be used for more than just specifically talking about the church. So it can be used to talk about an assembly or a congregation. In the New Testament we find that even in the book of Acts. Um, the, this word ecclesia is used to talk about a political gathering or even historically referencing um, things that have happened in the past, a gathering of people together. Uh, but specifically, we want to see today in our study is when the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament regarding a group of people who have been called out of the world to God. So when um, in the New Testament this word is used referring to believers, it is rightly translated church. And a great description of this is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14, which reads, He, being God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So with that in mind, I thought it would be fitting for us to read through the portion of our doctrinal statement on the church to give us kind of an overview of the topics uh, that we'll be discussing uh, some today and over the next several weeks in our study through the church. Here's what our statement reads. The church, 
We teach that at salvation, believers in Jesus Christ are immediately placed by the Holy Spirit into one united spiritual body called the church. The church was established by Jesus Christ and is composed of all believers in church called out of the world between the day of Pentecost and Christ's future coming for his bride. The church is manifested through the local church of baptized believers associated together by the fellowship of the gospel. We teach that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that the designated officers serving under Christ are elders, also referred to as overseers and pastors, and deacons whose qualifications and duties are defined by scripture. We teach that each local church is free to govern itself without any external authority, control, or interference from any individual or organization. We teach that the two ordinances of the church are baptism by immersion and the Lord's Supper, both of which are intended only for believers. We teach that the mission of the church is to glorify God by being and making disciples, which includes ministries of evangelism, biblical instruction, and fellowship. So what we're going to find in this study and is apparent in scriptures that the church is vitally important, both individually and globally, both personally in the life of a believer and as a means by which God is working to declare his glory to the world. But despite the importance, we tend to lack a robust and firm understanding of what God says about his church in his word. So let's start by looking at some verses to categorize the ways the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit referenced believers as the church. The first two categories we'll find um, in our study of systematic theology is the categories of universal and local. Universal and local. So these are what we would use as adjectives. So we would talk about the universal church in comparison to the local church. And we see this delineated in passages in scripture. First, we'll look at Ephesians 5, 25. Paul writes saying, Husband, love your, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Also, Jesus taught in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the universal church are those who have been regenerated, those who have been baptized by the Spirit. So we would rightly refer to the church as the universal church. So capital C when we're talking about the universal church. All genuine Christians throughout the entirety of the church age would be included in the universal church. So this refers to the starting of the church at Pentecost, which we'll talk about later today all the way up to the end of the church age. We would also say that of the universal church, this includes both those alive today and those who are already in heaven. So this universal church is meant to capture uh, the large group, the large scale, the large scope of believers from Pentecost moving forward through the church age. But we also see in scripture these other uh, verses that references seem to be for a smaller group when we're using this word ecclesia or translated church. So in Romans 16:5, Paul's writing says, greet also the church in their house. So it seems very specific that there is a group of people gathering together in a home and he calls that group the church. We also see in the opening of several of Paul's epistles um, that he references the church. So in 1 Thessalonians 1:1, 1, 1, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he seems to be referencing an entire town at that point as 
the church. We also see instructions for the church that fit with the definition of gathering together. In Hebrews 10, we see that the author writes, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there seems to be this other sort of uh, delineation of how the New Testament authors are referring to the church. And we would use the term the local church. So this would be a church, a specific subset of the universal church, a gathering. So we would say that the local church is to regularly gather together, and it's for believers, for the preaching, teaching, praise, accountability, and for serving one another. So these are categories that we can look at as we kind of categorize all these passages of scripture that use this word ecclesia referring to believers. The local church specifically is the gathering of professing believers who are intentionally seeking to fulfill the mission of the church and follow all that Christ has commanded. But we also will see in systematic theology study of the church a second pair of classifications we find, which is the visible and the invisible church. So the New Testament recognizes that not everyone who identifies externally, or that is with a profession of faith, with the gathered church is a true believer. We see this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus taught when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right before that, Jesus also warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there seemed to be this aspect of there's not everybody truly a believer inside this church, this this local gathering of believers and there's warnings against this in scripture john also writes about it in his first epistle he writes they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain they are not of us the reason we we need these helpful categories is because scripture so often talks about the local church as being a sort of a a a mixed bag. There may be some involved that are not truly children of God, but the Lord sees the heart, but man only looks on the outside. So for the visible church, we would refer to this as the group of those who outwardly profess faith in Christ, those who claim to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We could also rightly define the visible church as the church as Christians on earth see it. So what we can see is limited. We are finite, but God is infinite. He sees the heart. So what about the invisible church? The invisible church we could categorize as a group of those who truly possess saving faith in Christ. We could also rightly define it as the church as God sees it. And those are helpful categories in regards to thinking about the invisible church versus the visible church. And these distinctions are important because it allows us to be able to distinguish more accurately who belongs to Christ and understand multiple passages that warn against the weeds being mixed in with the wheat and the wolves in sheep's clothing. But scripture does not only tell us about the who, we would say, regarding the church, but also the when. That is, when did the church actually begin? 
So the beginning of the church we would talk about is at Pentecost. Let's look at several verses that kind of delineate this for us. First, we would uh, want to broadly kind of give us a landing point of differentiation. So we would say the church did not exist until after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And we see this laid out in several um, teachings um, in the epistles and in the book of Acts as well. Colossians 1.18 reads, And he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Seems to be indicating that Christ is the one who started and is the head of the church, the beginning of the church. But also in Acts 20, 28, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he instructs them in this way. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And then he says, which he obtained with his own blood. It seems to be that there's a, a point of change at the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, that there's a transaction that has changed. And we see this confirmed in the teaching in the, um, earlier in the book of Acts as well. In Acts 1-4, we see the promise of the church. Acts 1, starting in verse 4, writes, Luke writes, And while staying with them, he, referring to Christ, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So there's something that they're waiting for, they're anticipating, and we see this fulfillment just at the beginning of the next chapter. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance seems to be right here, right after the promise. He says, wait, something's coming. And then right after the author says, this is what came. And we received this gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we also see it confirmed later. Peter confirms this in chapter 11 of the book of Acts as well. He says, I, Peter, began to speak and the Holy Spirit fell on them. He's talking about Gentiles here. Just as on us, Jews, he says, at the beginning so in Peter's mind, he's saying there's a starting point of something new that's happened. And he's indicating that the beginning is actually at Pentecost. And he continues to teach through here, and he says the exact same terminology. So we're not misconstruing his own words. He says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And he's, he's indicating that there's a, an expansion of the church, an expansion of the gospel, and this new beginning started at Pentecost. But we also see the confirmation and the establishment, um, excuse me, we also see confirmation in the establishment of the church, specifically in the New Testament Pentecost, in the description of the church in the New Testament as a mystery. And maybe you've come across those passages and you're reading through scripture as well. You see this idea of mystery brought up in regards to the church. 
If you flip over in the book of Ephesians, look at Ephesians chapter 3 if you have your Bibles open this morning. Although there are many other passages that refer to the church as a mystery, Ephesians chapter 3 openly explains what is meant by the word mystery. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 3, we'll um, be in Ephesians for the next couple slides to talk through the mystery of the church. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, Paul is writing, and he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul's indicating here is that this idea of mystery is not something that's still mysterious actively, but rather something that has to be made known by God's revelation. And we see this explained in verse 5 where he says, it's not known, but it's now revealed. So there seems to be that something was revealed in the New Testament that wasn't known in the Old Testament. This further supports the previous observations that the church is something that's new, that started at Pentecost. And the specific mystery, Paul says here in verse 6, is that the Gentiles and the Jews are fellow heirs in the body of Christ. And that brings up the question for us as well, how, how should we then understand this relationship between the Jews and Gentiles? How do we understand the relationship between the Old Testament talking about um, Israel, so often the New Testament talking about the church. I'm glad you asked. This is a large and theologically significant topic. Um, and how you understand the relationship between the church and Israel is a watershed. It's a big breaking point between how you interpret large passages of Scripture. So this is, although it seems like we're digging deeper and deeper and it's an ancillary topic, it's actually very important to the way you study the Bible, uh, which would be what we call hermeneutics, how you interpret Scripture, how we understand the author's original intent and God's intent for us to understand it. So in Ephesians chapter 2, just flip a page earlier since I've got you in the book of Ephesians, Paul actually earlier explains this mystery that he talks about earlier in chapter 2, and I wanted to look at it with you together. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, referring to Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's saying there was um, this sort of angst and uh, enmity between these two ethnic groups, referring to Gentiles and Jews. He continues in 15 by saying how he did this. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And what he means by that is that there were several ceremonial laws in the Jewish law that actually prevented them, caused them to be distant from other nations, that they were to be separate and what he's saying is Christ fulfilled that so that there can be this new union together in the body of Christ. And he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
So he's indicating here we no longer need to be integrated into the nation of Israel to become included into God's people. Rather, anyone that is in Christ is part of God's people. And Paul was very strong in his opposition to the Judaizers who tried to convert Gentiles into Judaism to say this is how you become part of the church. He's saying, no, that's not how this works. There's a new way in Christ alone. It's through faith in Christ alone. And this has always been the plan of salvation, but God's had a specific people in the nation of Israel. And now he's opened up a way through the atonement of Christ to make it for all people. And he continues in verse 17 and says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, referring to the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, he says, with the saints and members of the household of God. And he talks about the foundation of the church next. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's through the cross the Gentiles are grafted in, Paul says in the book of Romans, to receive the blessing of salvation through faith in Christ alone. So, understanding this section of what's taught about how the Gentiles are brought into this unique right relationship with their creator, we need to understand, okay, is the church the same as ethnic Israel? Is there some sort of uh, synonymous term that the New Testament authors are using? And we would say accurately, no. Okay, the church is not the same as ethnic Israel. This is not the same thing. We're not just using the new term for the same group. There seems to be a distinction between Jews and the, and the church as a whole. So we do not find in Scripture verses that indicate the term Israel to be used for anything other than a group of ethnic Jews. So what about true Israel? We see that Paul says in Romans 9, 6, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So a lot of times you'll hear, well, maybe the church is true Israel or the spiritual Israel that, that Paul is talking about here. But again, there's, there's no actual textual support that implies uh, or explicitly states that the term Israel is used to include any group outside of ethnic Jews. There's never a verse that explains we're using the term Israel and we're including Gentiles in that group. But rather what Paul means in this verse is that there are believers that are Jews that are true Israel, that have a right relationship with their covenant God. So this is um, simply to indicate that um, aspect of those Jews that have trusted in the promise of God by faith. So we would understand accurately, though, this is a, 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 could be an appropriate term to use. Who is this true Israel? But we would say true Israel is the same as saved Israelites. We're not saying that there's this spiritual Israel that includes a larger group, but rather true Israel is a subset of ethnic Israel, um, which we'll um, show here in a little bit, and which refers to believers that are Jews. So thirdly, we would say, okay, we know that the church is not ethnic Israel, and we see this idea of a true Israel. What about true Israel? Is true Israel the same as the church? And we would say, no, the true, true Israel is not the same as the church because they're saved 
ethnic Israelites, right? And so that's not the whole contained group of the church as described in the passage we just read. We just read that the Gentiles are grafted in, so the church would be a larger group than true Israel. They're not equal. So we clearly see that the church is defined as including both Jews and Gentiles, so we can't limit it to just true saved Israelites. But we can specifically say how they relate to one another. So we would rightly say that true Israel, getting you back to your math class days, is a subset, a proper subset of the church. And for those that prefer visual aids, we have those as well. So if we were to do a Venn diagram, we would start with a circle. So this red circle is going to represent the church. These, this is referring to the invisible church, the universal church, that this is all true believers that are made right by God's grace and in a right relationship with him through faith in Christ. We would overlap that with a second circle that then says this is the ethnic Israelites. So this is a group of all those who are descendant of Israel. And in the middle, we see an overlap. A section here, a cross section, would be true Israelites. So if you are a ethnic Jew who is also, after Pentecost, saved and brought into a right relationship with Christ, you would be referred to as true Israel. And you would fit in this middle category here. But if we zoom in and focus on the church as a whole, what we can see is that true Israel is included in the church and both there would be other additional aspects, which would be the Gentiles who are brought in, who are grafted into this, this body of Christ. And what we need to understand is that even though true Israel would be a subset or a smaller section of the church, there needs to be distinction. Okay? There's a, there still is a distinction between the two. That means in the Old Testament, when God is speaking to Israel... He's not speaking to the church in the future or meaning to actually speak to spiritual Israel, which he means as the church. And we really need to understand this as a dangerous sort of thinking. Um, the reason is because, well, let me give you an illustration. I was married to my wife um, December 29th, 2011. So we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. And if on that day I filled out the marriage certificate and it says that I was married to Brady Diane Parkin, and then 10 years later, we've lived in a home together, and we've had a marital relationship. We have a family growing together. If I come in and just pull out my marriage certificate and say, hey, I show up with a new woman, it says, actually, this is the Brady Diane Parkin that I was really talking about that I was married to for all these 10 years, and this is who I'm actually, is, is my bride, who I married that day 10 years ago. That would be horribly wrong, right? We would all say that. So what comes into light here is that we need to understand there's not a way to say, okay, in the Old Testament, he really was pursuing and involved in this nation of Israel, but now in the New Testament, he just really meant all that for the church. And so all those promises are just now carried over to the church, and this is really true Israel. And we need to understand that what that does is it, it really substitutes who God is making covenant promises with. And if he's made a covenant promise saying, you know, splitting animals in half and walking through by himself, saying, if I don't keep this promise, let this be done to me, he can't just switch the audience with which he's writing a contract with. That's really important for us to understand and will help you as you interpret large parts of Scripture. I like the way Michael Vlock accurately summarizes this topic. He says there's this salvific unity with distinct roles. There's salvific unity. There's this unity in regards to salvation and how that's applied and how that's brought to fruition, but there's still distinct roles. We can't just blur the lines here and try to uh, make them the same group or generalize and flatten out these promises in Scripture. 
So what we've seen this morning so far is the church is something that was new according to New Testament authors. It was established after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. It was initiated at Pentecost with the promised baptism of the Spirit. And it was a mystery in the Old Testament that was revealed by God through his apostles in the New Testament to include both Jews and Gentiles in this new group in Christ. And the church, we also see, is distinct from the nation of Israel and does not take over specific promises made by God to ethnic Israel. So this morning, we've spent a large majority of our time looking at the who of the church and even the when of the church. Uh, But I'd like to spend some time this morning briefly talking uh, about the what. So what is the purpose, rather, of the church? So first, we're going to look at what the church is not. And specifically, now we're talking about the local church. We've spent a lot of time this morning in kind of looking at the universal church, the body of Christ, those who are made alive. But we also want to look at the local church. What is God's purpose for the local church? And there's some commonly used illustrations that are um, misconceptions of the local church that fall short of a biblical definition. And these are, are helpful illustrations for us in understanding how maybe even our mindset of coming to church, what we expect out of church or what we anticipate Um, as we arrive today, uh, might be challenged by. So first, we would say the local church is not a gas station. And this is what we mean. We mean it's not a place we drive into about once a week when we are running low on fuel. Some would view the church as a place primarily to be filled up at. They need some new biblical information or encouragement or maybe some inspiring type feelings. But they are mainly concerned with their desires and what they get out of the church. And that would be a a misconception. That is not what God clearly lays out as his purpose for the church. We also would say that the church is not meant to be a movie theater. Uh, The church, um, in this view, says it's a place we escape in effort to avoid our problems via entertainment. This person expects a thrilling experience of excellent facilities, top-notch children ministries, and an inspiring sermon and music that perfectly suits their actual preferences. This attitude is most apparent on the drive home, though, when they turn into a consumer critic mindset and they start rating everything in the church service on a scale of one to five. Also, the church is not meant to be your local drugstore. It's not meant to be a place where we go to get the right prescription or therapy that is sure to fix us. This person's view is that the church um, is meant to be uh, a place where they go only when life is overwhelming or when it's stressful, and it's just to make their pain go away. This sort of person thinks that their happiness is actually the main goal of the church. We would also say that the church is not meant to be a big box retailer. The church, in this view, is a place where we go and everything is just conveniently under one one roof. It's well organized, it's accessible with great services for me and my family, and it's really, though, all about efficiently meeting my desired goals for me and my family. All of these views of the church are very consumer-minded. They're self-centered goals that we're placing expectations upon Christ's church, and we disguise it as good things. You may even be hearing these descriptions and be like, well, I think that is an aspect of the church. But anytime we make a good thing the great thing, It becomes a little g-god thing, and that's idolatry. So we need to make sure that we're not getting those things mixed up. If our understanding of the church is man-centered, then we are far away from God's purpose for his church. This sort of mentality 
um, actually leads to a conclusion that you may be hearing more and more today. Um, it's becoming much more common when people say this phrase, I don't need to attend or join a local church, I just need to be the church. That's where this mindset leads when I'm really just serving myself. And like most errors, this sort of thinking is, as you see, man-centered. It's not about God anymore, it's about me. And it's sure to lead to disappointment and to lead to failure. Even true believers can fall into these sort of consumer mentalities because we lack a biblical foundation for what God says he will do through his church. So what is the true purpose of the church? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Look with me in your Bibles at Acts chapter 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, as we saw earlier, this has already been the established church. And we see a great description of what happened after Peter was preaching. And we see this large amount of people saved. And then we see a description of what the early church actually looked like here in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had, excuse me, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as we look at this passage, we can actually see a list of things that were happening in the early church. We see biblical instruction. We see corporate prayer. We see spiritual unity. We see celebrative worship. We see lay ministry and caring fellowship. We see active evangelism, biblical discipleship, and all at the end, he says, for the purpose of glorifying and praising God. What we need to understand is there's two aspects of the church when we look at the local church. There's going to be both function and there's going to be form. Function we would define as the biblical absolutes given in Scripture For being the church. What qualifies a local church as being the church according to God's word? And it would be these aspects that we see in scripture. And it's what the church actually should be doing. But form is the structure by which uh, the church carries out these absolutes. It's more the how of ministry rather than the what of ministry. And what we need to understand when evaluating churches or encouraging churches that were, or even serving in churches, to understand this aspect that function is always over form. Function over form. So when people are involved in serving the body of Christ, we have to care more about function over form. That means it's not always going to look the way you envision it to happen. But function is happening. If God is being glorified in the service of his children, that is pleasing to him. And we ought to love what God loves. I love this idea of a mature believer as defined by, um, I think it was one of the pastors at Countryside. He said, a mature believer is someone who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. 
And if God loved his church so much that he laid down his life for it, and he instructs his church, we ought to have an eager and expectant heart to love the body of Christ as well. And if we were to summarize this, which we do here at Redemption Hill, we would say our mission statement as a church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So being means discipleship, and making means evangelism. So we see this three-head summary, but really, if we were to put it down to one thing, we would say, ultimately, our purpose is to glorify God. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. It is made for him. And so if we have any of these sort of seeds of man-centered thinking that sneak into our personal definition of the church, we are sure to fall short of what God's purpose is for his church. Not that those other things don't happen, not that we're not encouraged and exhorted and filled up and, and, and even pouring out into the lives of others, but if we're not doing it for the purpose of glorifying God, of honoring him, of seeing him and beholding him, then we're missing the point of what God has blessed his body with by bringing us into a local gathering together, and it's to glorify him. So, in conclusion, I wanted to ask us a couple questions. Question number one, are you a part of the church? Are you a part of the church? This universal aspect in scripture is exclusive to those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we need to evaluate in our own hearts. And scripture tells us to. It says that apart from Christ, um, we are, or sorry, that there is no life apart from Christ. And we are called to make our election sure. We need to personally evaluate, am I, do I truly belong to Christ? Secondly, are you a part of a church? So is there a local body of believers that you are a part of, accountable to, responsible for, and fed and encouraged and exhorted by? We are not called to live the Christian life alone. We're actually called to be a part of a fellowship of believers, which is a huge blessing for us, both in how we serve and are served. It's humbling, it's exhorting, it's encouraging And if we don't have that blessing, we're missing out on what Scripture calls us as believers to be a part of. And then lastly, do you love Christ's church? Christ protects and provides for his church. And the question for us is, does your view of the church mirror or resemble Christ's view of the church? And if not, why? I think one of the most... um, uh, one thing that's come up in my mind this week is studying through it is that the church is not a topic we always talk about um, explicitly to say what does scripture teach on it. And so we really absorb a lot of definitions through osmosis or through experience. And I think that this is a topic that for us we ought to evaluate God's heart for his church. And when we see that diminishing glow compared to his, we ought to recognize that this is something I need to care more about. This is something I need to investigate more to have a heart of Christ for his church, because if my heart does not compare to his accurately or, or rise up to, to care for the church and be involved in the church and be accountable to the church, then my love is what's wrong, not Christ's. And I need to recognize that my definitions that I get from my experience or from my preferences really need to be sacrificed and set aside and say that I need to be defining my view of the church according to what God's word says. Lastly, I'll just mention some resources used in preparation. We've been mentioning a biblical doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, which is a fantastic resource. Also wanted to recommend Has the Church Replaced Israel by Michael Vlock. Um, This is probably more of a headier read, but is a very helpful resource in understanding several passages walking through how Israel is distinct 
from the church. And then lastly, I just wanted to mention Bible doctrine uh, with Wayne Grudem. I will say, though, we're going to put a little asterisk on his section on ecclesiology. Um, he doesn't define the church exactly the same way we do. He has a broader definition than we would, according to Scripture, what we see. And he also would have a different aspect of the relationship between the nation of Israel and the church. So just be aware of that. that those are resources you have and wanted to do further study in. Next week, we'll continue in part two and talk through uh, the structure and the authority of the church. And as always, if you have any questions, please do email those to us. Uh, we'll keep those as we plan to do a Q&A at the end of the section on ecclesiology. With that, you're dismissed.